Hello and welcome to New Books in Sports. My name is Keith Rathbone and I'm here today with uh, Gerald Gems. He is the professor and formal chairperson of the kinesiology department at North Central College in Naperville, Illinois. And he is the past president of the North American Society for Sports History and the former vice president of the International Society for Sports History and Physical Education and Sports. And he was also a Fulbright scholar. We're here today to talk about one of his many books, uh, Sport in the American Occupation of the Philippines, Bats, Balls, and Bayonets, which is out from Lexington Books in 2016. Uh, welcome, uh, Jerry. How are you doing? Well, thank you. I'm doing well. Thanks. Thank you very much for joining us today. I, I, I want to start off by telling you I found your book completely fascinating and really enjoyed getting to read it. I wondered if you might start us off by just telling us how this project developed. Well, thank you. Um, well, actually, my first uh, interaction with the Philippines was uh, when I was in the military service in Vietnam. My unit got wiped out and we were sent to the Philippines uh, for replacements because we basically didn't have enough people to function anymore. So that was my introduction to the Philippines. Uh, after the war, I lived there for a year. I've uh, been back there, uh, I think, two or three times since then. Um, and so, it, you know, the place had held some fascination for me. And once I had got some formal schooling, uh, I wanted to investigate it more, knowing that the U.S. had uh, almost a half century of presence uh, in the country. And what, well, actually, what happened was I, you know, I, I've, I had given some shorter presentations at conferences about this, and then uh, the editor from the Lexington Books, I've, I wrote another earlier book in 2005 uh, about American use of sports throughout Asia and throughout the Caribbean. The Philippines was one chapter at that point. Uh, when the editor uh, heard the presentation, he then asked me to write an entire book. Uh, about the American occupation in the Philippines. And so that was really the genesis of this particular book. I really found your kind of organizational structure in the, in the way you were making this fine-grained argument about translation and reception of sporting practices uh, really interesting. And I, I wondered if you might talk a little bit more about how you see, um, how you see sports working as part of this broader process of, of Americanization in the Philippines. And then we, I guess we could move on from that and talk in more specifics throughout some of your thematic chapters, but just kind of in broad senses, how you see sports working. Yeah, I wanted to break it down uh, in the different factors of analysis that uh, I saw sport kind of, kind of the, you know, the red thread running through each of these things in some cases, how it affected education, how it affected the economy, how it affected, uh, you know, um, racial and class relations, uh, how it changed the culture, all these types of things, uh, the religion as well. So I, I just saw, saw sport as kind of this common uh, thread in all of these different areas that were essential to the American uh, occupation of the Philippines, of which lasted almost a half a century. So your, your first chapter is on, on social Darwinism, and I thought that was a, a, a kind of interesting place to start because we start in some ways, back in the American mindset. So uh, can you kind of talk us through how you see sport as related to social Darwinism and, and why did you start there? 
Well, I think because uh, probably the most important factor in the relationships between the Americans and the Filipinos was was race. And happening in the 19th century, I mean, even today, race is still a huge issue in American culture, but it was even a bigger issue uh, back then. I mean, you had all these, um, you know, pseudoscientific theories about race and uh you know, kind of racial pyramids constructed by people who were considered to be the scientists of, at the time uh, about racial categorization and and where different groups fit in that that pyramid. And of course, these were studies done by white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, scholars who always assumed that they were the epitome, the point of the pyramid, and that. They rationalize their conquest of all these different countries. So it starts with England have, with the biggest empire and, and many of the others, Germany, France, etc., cetera, uh, especially in their conquering of, of Africa and Asia as a rationalization for why they were at the epitome, why they were the highest race, the white race, the Anglo-Saxon race. And as they explained it as kind of the survival of the fittest and that they were destined to be at that level. And it was their so-called, this is where the religion part comes in, their Christian duty to colonize these other lands and peoples that they saw as inferior as basically a favor to them, to teach them how to become civilized like they were and advance, uh, at least in their eyes, advancing their cultures, whether those peoples wanted that or not, right? It's an argument you can still make today. Um, but that's how they saw the world, and they rationalized it on racial racial grounds and racial theories of the time. And, and sport was one of the things that helped kind of reify those hierarchies, right? Yeah, for sure. One of the ways in which they compared uh, themselves to uh, other cultures and other racial and ethnic groups uh, was through sport. Okay, sport was a competition. I mean, boxing was the ultimate one-on-one competition. And so, of course, the white man had to be the heavyweight champion of the world. And it was a, a real blow to whites around the world when a black man actually captured the championship in 1908. And then there was a, a worldwide crusade to find any white man who could could beat him. But this is kind of like the it gives you some idea of how race became a primary factor, uh, not just in the United States, uh, but around the world, okay? So it, it justified these imperialistic crusades, these conquerings of other people, and sport became a way to test these things, all right? Um, yes, clearly they could test it with their technology and, and come in with cannons and uh, machine guns and defeat people who didn't have that type of equipment, but sport became a way for them to play this out in a public display as a way to also uh, teach or, or try to inculcate in the colonized peoples the idea that they were superior, to have them believe it and to prove it to them publicly. This becomes problematic, however, not only for the Americans, but uh, for other colonizing countries when the uh, colonized peoples start to defeat them, especially at their own games. And I think you see that played out today still very much when countries like India or Pakistan defeat Great Britain in cricket. It's it's a huge celebration. It's a huge um, way for them to uh, you know demonstrate 
this falsehood of this racial superiority theories. Well, one of the great anecdotes from your book that I think illustrates this point so well that you're making was the story about uh, the Filipino volleyball team. And I wonder if you could talk yeah, a bit about that. <laughs> That was the one I thought you would pick out. Uh, yeah, this was actually happening. What what the uh, YMCA came in, and what had been a a business exhibition, um, you know, trying to promote Filipino goods around the world that the Americans organized in Manila. It was called the Manila Carnival. The YMC, YMCA came in, and a guy named Elwood Brown, who was the director of the YMCA, transformed. Uh, this what had been the business uh, exhibition into an athletic festival, right? So the athletic festival was uh, kind of this uh, culminating activity where all the national championships and a great variety of sports were going to be contested. One of the sports was volleyball. And so a group, the Filipino, one, there were a number of teams, but the Americans had their own team. Uh, the, the, the men who worked for them formed their own Filipino team. Uh, they both reached the finals of the, the championship in volleyball. The Americans got upset because, again, it was one of these cases of the Filipinos who were considered to be tricksters, and Americans didn't see this as, as the proper way to uh, play sport. They also had the same idea about warfare, that it should be you know stand-up confrontation face-to-face, -face, not hiding behind rocks and shooting and things like this, not guerrilla warfare. So sport becomes this form of surrogate warfare, right? So this, you'll see this culminates in the, the volleyball match where the Filipinos are playing around. They supposedly hit the ball 52 times before they returned it over the net. By this time, the Americans are probably laying down, you know, they're un, uninterested, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and the Filipinos win. The Americans are greatly upset by this. They change the rules and they change the rules to state that from now on, the Filipinos are allowed only three hits and the Americans are allowed unlimited hits. <laughs> so a way that they rewrote the rules in their favor to, again, hopefully demonstrate that the Americans were superior, that the, when the Filipinos won, there must be an excuse. Uh, it was trickery. Okay. I, I, that I, When I read that, I, I just laughed out loud because of, you know, the same group of people who are articulating the, the values of Americanization that they want Filipinos to adopt, including fair play, then, it, then make it so that the rules are different for people on different sides of the net, right? Yeah, you had a, you had a similar confrontation in boxing matches. The American Army, uh, as soon as they came in, they started teaching the Filipinos boxing and baseball. And um, by... Uh, the 19-teens, the, the Filipinos have a number of really good boxers of their own at the lighter weights. And in fact, one of them, uh, who interestingly, this is another good story, I thought, his real name was Francisco Guillero. He took the boxing alias of um, Pancho Villa, uh, you know, as, as many Americans might know, but maybe not others. Pancho Villa was this Mexican outlaw that invaded the Southwest uh, in 1914, the American Southwest, the Southwestern states, you know, uh, stealing cattle, killing Americans. And, and the Americans spent a couple of years, I think, before they actually got into the real World War I in Europe, chasing Pancho Villa around the Southwest, never successfully capturing him. So he, so Guido takes this uh, name as Pancho Villa. And, and I thought that was really kind of ironic, a message he was sending to the Americans.
So anyway, he uh, he ends up fighting the uh, U.S. Army champion 13 different times. He won 12, and the other one was a draw. He never lost. Okay, so again, it's this public display to Filipinos themselves that their own guy can defeat the Americans at their own game. Then an American promoter who discovered him takes him to the United States where he wins the world championship as a flyweight. But the American media can't believe it. They're, they're, there's all kinds of quotes I have in the book about things they were saying. That he's not really human. Nothing human can move that fast. They're trying to uh, rationalize how he actually wins by being faster than other fighters. He must be more like an animal. They're calling him a monkey and all kinds of other things suggesting that he's, you know, it's like fighting some animal in the ring. He's not really completely a human being. And so you see this racialization taking place whenever the Filipinos win. I mean, they would win baseball games sometimes against the Americans as well. But the Americans take this uh, Filipino love for football, or not football, rather baseball, what was the American national game at the time. And they're actually able to channel that, the, the, the Filipino nationalism, uh, because there was a guerrilla war going on between the Filipinos and the American military uh, for 16 years there. They, at this Manila Carnival that I mentioned before, they invited uh, the Jap a Japanese team from Wasada University to play. And the Filipino team played against the Wasada, the Japanese team. And they won in a three-game series. And, and from this point on, the Japanese and the Chinese are invited to this Manila Carnival to compete. And the Japanese baseball teams as well are invited to come to the Philippines. The idea was to channel the Filipino nationalism away from the, what they saw as the oppressive Americans and against the Japanese who were now their enemies, no longer the Americans. At least that was the idea. And, and they succeeded to a great extent in sport. The, the Manila Carnival became so big that it was called the um, Asian Olympics uh, for some time until the Olympics threatened to sue, the actual Olympics. And so they changed the name to the uh, Asian Games. But uh, this is how uh, the Japanese also got involved in uh, – um, Western sport, and this, they also joined the actual Olympics, I think, in 1912. And by the 1930s, in the Olympic Games, they this isn't in the book, but just in a, as an aside, they are also um, testing themselves against white athletes and, in fact, doing quite well by 1932 in swimming events and also in some of the um, track and field events. In fact, uh, they had taken over Korea by 1905, uh, taking the Korean athletes, giving them Japanese names, and a Jap and and one of them won the marathon race in uh, 1936, and that's still a, a very contested um, issue among uh, the Koreans and the Japanese today uh, about Koreans not getting the recognition and Japanese and Japan claiming the recognition for that marathon winner um, during that Olympic games. So uh, it's not only the U.S., but other uh, countries have used sport as a uh, kind of a what's now called soft political power. Yeah, yeah, and you you highlight that throughout the book. One of the one of the um, kind of interesting things I I was seeing throughout your chapters is is the role of the U.S. military in in both. Um, bringing sport to the Philippines, but also making sports spaces available. And not only because they thought of sports as having this kind of soft power, but also because they wanted to create spaces for Americans to compete 
in sports. And then later those spaces became desegregated for other reasons. And I, I, I wondered if you could talk about what role you saw sport playing in the U.S. military at the time. You have a lot of great uh, talk in here about uh, Teddy Roosevelt and his kind of uh, his kind of work in that realm. And then yeah. later how the how the U.S. military's what their role was in bringing sports to the Philippines. Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt is really a central figure, at least at the start of the story. Uh, you know, for non-Americans, he's a very inter- well, even for Americans, he's a very interesting character. Um, he, you know, he he came to power in New York State. Um, and really, uh, in the Republican Party, they really tried to get rid of him because he was such a pest, and and he was he was a, a crusader for progressive reforms, uh, which didn't go well with the um, politicians, the corrupt politicians who were you know making a lot of money. Um, and but what happens is he uh, he he gets assigned to the um, se- the as the assistant secretary of the Navy in Washington D.C. and uh, when his boss goes on vacation, he takes it upon himself to create a war plan uh, if the United States should ever go to war uh, in the, with the Spanish, okay? And, and shortly thereafter, they do. But he had already sent the, the American fleet over to the Philippines, which was a Spanish colony at the time, had been for 300 years, right? In case war broke out, he did this on his own, you know, while the secretary was on vacation, then when the war actually does break out uh, in Cuba, initially, he forms his own uh, regiment known as the Rough Riders Cavalry Regiment, uh, made up of uh, rich guys from uh, who were athletes at um, the best colleges in Chicago, what we call the Ivy League, not Chicago, rather, in the United States, the Ivy League schools, and athletes, cowboys from the West, where he spent a couple of years uh, getting over various sicknesses when he was young. Uh, he rushes down to Cuba and and is portrayed as a war hero, which only enhances his presidential ambitions. He becomes vice president uh, when William McKinley is uh, elected president uh, as kind of a, a measure, again, to push him off to the side. Vice presidents are usually just kind of uh, nominal figures whose careers, political careers are then pretty much over. After they serve. But what happens is William McKinley is assassinated. And as vice president, Teddy Roosevelt becomes the president. He becomes, he's, he's very much a proponent of naval, uh, of, uh, naval warfare. Of, uh, this is before airplanes, okay? So the ships that rule the seas, this is how uh, England created its empire. And it's at, at the period of the 1890s where the U.S. is really um, – uh, pushing against Great Britain to become the world power. Uh, they surpassed Great Britain economically in the 1890s, and now they need foreign markets. So Teddy Roosevelt gets in the war, comes back, uh, becomes vice president and then president. And one of the things he does is he creates this huge American fleet and sends it around the world in a, a worldwide trip for a whole year to demonstrate American power. And a lot of these things, ideas are played out in the Philippines. So he's a central figure in, in making the U.S. a uh, world power and, and the dominant country, uh, you know, shortly after they take over the Philippines, and which becomes rather apparent, uh, especially in World War I. So he's largely responsible for this. And one of the things that the military does is that baseball was a national game. They felt baseball was this means of creating all kinds of leadership abilities, um, you know, uh, 
teamwork as well is kind of the the, the um, factors that factor into a democracy, to, um, and that you know baseball created this. Uh, you know, again, martial spirit, this competition, things like this, football, even more so. Teddy Roosevelt was a big proponent of American football, which even non-Americans would know was a very violent game. When that game was going to be uh, banned because of his brutality and, and many, many deaths in the game, he steps in uh, to try to save it because uh, he feels that, again, it's one that really promotes a martial spirit and leadership and what and these are the qualities that would be would be necessary if America was to become, at least the United States was to become uh, a world leader. And so he pushes sports in particular. So all of the the uh, fleet, um, all the American different fleets. They had American. They had a Atlantic fleet, Pacific fleet, and the units within those fleets had baseball teams, right? Um, and they would play each other for uh, fleet championships. And when they did. Uh, land in other countries. They might put an ex on an exhibition of the game. But in the Philippines, they were able to uh, construct a whole military league because they were there for so long. But it was, that, as I said, that and boxing were their first sports that they tried to teach the Filipinos. And the Filipinos accepted both of them quite well. In fact, even more so, the, the one that the YMCA pushed was both volleyball and basketball, which were games that the YMCA actually invented in the 1890s, and they pushed them all around the world, which is why you see today one of the repercussions of that is basketball has a much bigger global presence than certainly American football or American baseball, which is still prominent, uh, and it, which had been introduced throughout the Caribbean countries and in Asian countries. Um, but basketball is even more prominent worldwide through um, you know, the enterprises of the YMCA. But this, as I said, this is these were sports that the military introduced even before the American teachers came over. So the American soldiers were actually the original teachers uh, in the schools, and they they quickly started building schools around the country and especially around the Manila area, and teaching them uh, English language, um, American civics, and American sports, you know, particularly baseball. Um, as a way to teach American cultural values. So the cultural values in particular that they wanted to teach is, again, getting back to this idea of soft power, without forcing the Filipinos to do something they didn't want necessarily want to do, they concentrate on the children in the schools, okay? Uh, adults, because we went through the same process here in the United States, and they already knew um, that uh, adults weren't going to change their minds about things, okay? But children's minds are still fertile. They can be changed. So we, they did this with, uh, before they even did it in the Philippines, they did it here in the United States when they took Indian, Indian children away from their parents. And they can, the first Indian school was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which had been a former uh, army camp. And they turned it into a residential uh, school for Indian children from about 70 different tribes. And they used sports as a way to teach them particular value systems, the same things they wanted to teach the uh, Filipino children. And this worked so well that they eventually created 39 different um, Indian schools around the United States, some of them which are still in operation today. And Canada did the same thing, created schools for Indian children. And they had to live at the school, and they largely learned the same values they were trying to teach the Americans. So what they were trying to teach was, first of all, capitalism. That was the basis for the American economy. They were concerned because for the previous two or three decades, we had a lot of labor conflict in the U.S., uh, uprisings, um, 
what they call terrorist attacks. You had a lot of socialist and communist groups forming, labor unions forming with uh, socialistic ideas or even communistic ideas. And they were concerned about this. So they wanted to teach them capitalism. So they taught them how to compete in games. Sports require competition. And this competition is the is also, as I said, the basis for capitalism, right? You compete with other companies or other countries for trade. And so whether the, the children knew it or not, they were learning to become good little capitalists. Next, they wanted to teach them uh, respect for authority, okay? They did that by having officials for games, umpires in baseball games, officials or referees in other games. If what happens in a soccer game, most people in the world understand soccer. So if you argue with the referee, you get a red card, you get tossed out of the game, right? Employers loved this. They wanted their, their employees to learn respect for authority, right? Um, they wanted to teach them democracy, right, which was the American form of government. So the way they did with this was through team sports, and baseball was a team sport and a national the national sport at the time. So baseball was kind of um, um, confusing to uh, a lot of countries that they tried to install this game in. So what they tried to teach them was um, in the form of democracy, baseball, you had a team captain, all right? You had a manager who were the leaders. They directed play. They taught others how to play. This was leadership. But if the team was going to uh, succeed, all nine players who were on the field at one time had to cooperate, similar to democracy. If democracy is going to succeed, okay, it goes by, you know, power of the people, you know, uh, they vote in who they choose. We all have to cooperate for the uh, uh, sake of the government uh, to function, although that's relatively hard today. But Okay. Uh, the other thing they wanted them to teach was individualism, which was another American characteristic. So they, what they taught them was on defense, when the players are in the field, they all have to cooperate just like your family may cooperate. Okay. Maybe your extended family, because a lot of these people came from communal cultures, especially the Filipinos. But when they bat or hit the ball, just like in cricket, everyone gets a chance individually. And they're rewarded, if it's a professional team or semi-professional team, based on their production. Production, The better hitters would get more pay. The better hitters would get more media attention, right? And just like in the American workforce, those who produced the mo most, whether it was in factory work or sales or whatever else, would get paid more than other workers who did not work as hard. So they were trying to teach them work ethic, individualism, and democracy. Those are the three main factors they wanted them to learn about American culture, and they were pretty successful about that. I, I think you also did a great job. I, I, I throughout your, you, you were always doing a great job of pointing out the power of sport as kind of an educational tool. Um, but one of the things that I found really interesting is how they were trying to instill Western that that the values of Western masculinity as well. Um, that Filipinos were were simultaneously seen as, as dangerous with these bolo knives that they would hide and maybe at attack American soldiers, um, but that also they were effeminate. And so uh, there's this weird kind of um, non-Western masculinity that was confusing to the American authorities. So they wanted to instill their particular version of masculinity in sport was a, was a good way to do that, right? Yeah, and I think this this is still a problematic for the U.S. today. The U.S. goes into countries, uh, they're not familiar with the culture. You can see this in the Mideast. 
they are ethnocentric in their value systems, assuming assuming that American values are uh, would benefit everybody. And in, in actuality, a lot of other people are perfectly happy with their culture and don't want to change. Um, but there was a, during this time, the late 19th century, there was a real crisis of masculinity in the United States. Uh, for the first time, women's colleges were opened. Women were able to uh, take part in classes with men uh, in some of the co-ed colleges or at least co-ed classes and actually showing them up. Uh, women started playing sports like baseball, which uh, you know men were very upset about. Women start riding bicycles, and this got really problematic by the 1880s because bicycles were – were fast that you, you could go, uh, you know, at great speed, right? There were women trick riders who uh, d- did stunts that most men could not do. You had vaudeville, which became very popular from the 1880s onward, and you, where you had women weightlifters who were lifting more weight than men than most men could possibly lift. There were women boxers by the late 19th century. Two of them, I've you know written about this as well in another book. Two of them actually challenged the male champions. I mean, obviously, the males didn't fight them. They had nothing to win. But men felt besieged by the, by feminization at the time. Women wanting rights. Women wanted to vote, okay? Um, they, they, in addition to suffrage rights, they wanted equal rights. They wanted to be able to hold property. They, they wanted temperance because uh, men basically owned their property. A husband could de- demand sex from his wife and just abuse her if he wanted to. And so they felt a lot of that was due to alcohol. And this is why so many women were in the temperance movement trying to do away with alcohol, which they finally did, but temporarily. So there was this great fear among men, especially when women start riding the bicycles. When you think about a bicycle, they had these big, you know, before that hoop skirts and things, they couldn't be very active. But when they started riding bicycles, they start wearing bloomers and they start wearing pants. And you've heard the term, who wears the pants in the family? Men got very upset about women wearing pants, that they felt they were really taking over American or male fashion as well as American sports and challenging men uh, in the political sphere and, you know, in, in schools uh, even in the professions, women started becoming doctors and lawyers and other types of things at this time. So men were very concerned at this time. Um, and so they wanted to characterize the Filipinos as uh, f- effeminate, all right, uh, which they try to do. And one of the ways in which they did this, uh, it's, it's too bad that I couldn't have um, photos in the book because uh, one of the guys who's the main character in the uh, uh, book, Dean Worcester, who's the Secretary of the Interior for a number of years, was also writing many articles for the National Geographic. And it was, this was around just before uh, World War I started when they started using color photography. And I have a, a great number of slides from the National Geographic during the period where he was characterizing the Filipinos as effeminate. He had um, you know, photos of particular tribesmen who wore uh, what, you know, what, what Americans would call a skirt and also very colorful um, clothing, you know, bright red, yellow, things like that, uh, that American men who wore only black or white would consider feminine. Only women wear, you know, colored clothes. Uh, This particular guy that he featured also had, uh, you know, uh, longest hair and earrings. You know, today that would, would, you know, would be a norm for many cultures. But uh, he characterized this as very feminine. He also had a narrow waist. And so he took all these different physical characteristics of this particular guy to demonstrate the femininity of Filipino tribesmen. So there were many ways in which he did that, uh, you know, and diminished Filipinos as, as uh, he called the Negrito tribe as, you know, 
basically uh, the missing link between apes and, and human beings. So he was the most hated of all the American officials over there. And he, he continually, uh, you know, after even he left his job in the Philippines under very scandalous circumstances, he was always enriching himself and his son and his brother um, through various schemes. Uh, he finally is forced to leave, but then he comes back on a lecture tour of the U.S. with these these slideshows and these articles and things characterizing the Filipinos as very effeminate, but yet wanting them uh, to become masculine. Uh, and and this, this also had a military purpose because uh, very early on, what I discovered in going through the archives in the uh, uh, National Records at the Library of Congress was that as early as 1905, the Americans realized that they were potentially going to have to fight a war with Japan. And they had war plans already by 1905. I've seen these in the archives. Uh, the, Japan was also uh, on a quest to become a world power. They had westernized over the latter half of the 19th century after you know, the Westerners forced their way into Japan and realized they would have to if they were going to compete. But they were starting to compete. You see, in 1895 already, they defeat China in a war. And they felt, and then, and, and well, that was 1895. Then in 1905, they defeat uh, Russia in a war, right? So they felt that the Pacific territory should belong to them. They should be the dominant power in the Pacific. So when the U.S. moved into the Philippines and stayed, the Japanese saw this as a threat which is why they were so happy to play the Filipino teams in baseball because baseball was also their national sport. Um, so as I said, the, the, teaching the Filipinos to become more masculine in the American sense and becoming more militaristic, the Filipinos would also, by the 1930s, start their own version of West Point Military Academy uh, to produce military officers. And we see eventually these, this uh, um, tension between the U.S. and uh, the Japanese being played out in the Philippines in these ball games, and you had American baseball teams who would not only uh, barnstorm to the Philippines but also to Japan to play games there. And in fact, in the 1930s, the Japanese call for a, a truly uh, world professional league so that they could play against the Americans. And uh, this doesn't happen, of course. The, the Japanese do start their own professional league in the 1930s, uh, but then. Uh, the Filipinos end up being kind of like the safeguard, uh, the frontier boundary for the Americans, knowing that this war is going to take place. And it does take place with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And then the Filipinos, uh, uh, excuse me, the Japanese invade the Philippines, right, which is kind of the boundary, the frontier that they have to go through first before they can actually attack the West Coast of the United States, which really doesn't happen. There's only one instance where a Filipino submarine shot some rockets or something into California, Oregon, some of the Western states. But that was the only aggression that, that actually happened on uh, American soil. But the more Americans saw this coming. And as I said, they had a, they had a war plan already manufactured uh, in, you know, very early in the 20th century for Japan. You bringing up uh, the Waseda team visiting the Philippines really uh, reminds me that you know, we've been talking so far about what the Americans were doing and what their interests were in bringing sports and why you know, they wanted to inculcate certain values to prop up the Philippines as their as their colony to promote um, 
the economic valor of the of the colony to prepare them as this kind of military frontier. But there are also the Filipinos who had their own interests, right? <laughs> and I think your work does a lot to show um, the ways in which Filipinos, uh, different groups within the Philippines, different tribal groups, the Igalat, the Negrito, uh, but also different social groups like the Ilustrado are, are adopting different sports practices uh, to suit their own purposes. And, and that the Americans are, are able to inculcate uh, certain values or bring certain sports, but not others. Um, and they're able to, to stamp out some traditional practices, but not others like cockfighting remains ex- extremely popular. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about w- what the Filipinos are doing, how they're adopting or not adopting certain practices and for what purposes they're doing. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, uh, scholars, we have to realize that this imposition of value systems is not a one-way process. People have choices. Okay. So this is part of my theoretical framework in the book. Uh, this what's called hegemony theory. Okay. The, the, the Filipinos have choices. They they can uh, accept what the Americans tell them or try to get them to do. They can totally reject it, which is what you know the uh, Filipino army uh, did and and fought this guerrilla war for you know sixteen years. Um, or they can adopt it or they can adapt it. And what the Filipinos do is they they basically take what they want from the American culture. They uh, accept some of it, they adopt some of it, but they also adapt it, okay? So basketball, you could see it the way they play basketball, okay? Most Filipinos aren't very tall, okay? But they play a faster game, outside shooting and things like that, uh, so it's not dominated by a big man. Uh, and, Phil- and, and basketball is the most popular sport still in the Philippines today. But one of the other techniques that the um, Americans did, well, two things, they, and they still use this in, in places like Afghanistan today, they take the native Filipinos and they train them. And what they did was they would take some of the tribes and, and still there are many different tribal groups in the Philippines today who were enemies of others that they were trying to pacify. And they would train them as the local police called the constabulary. And then they would have them enforce the rules rather than have, uh, you know, the arrests and even, you know, imprisonment and things like that. And even some killings so that the Americans themselves wouldn't be blamed. And so this is exactly what they've been doing in Afghanistan as well. They create a, a you know, um, a national constabulary, which basically carries out the orders of, you know, the Americans, but it's their own people, you know, imposing it on them rather than visibly the Americans doing so. The other thing they did was they took what were called uh, the illustrados, the upper class of the, uh, uh, Philippines. These were uh, usually mestizos who were half Spanish. Um, they were the upper class. They owned most of the property. They were the uh, ruling elites, the people who had political offices uh, under the Spanish. And they took the children of those families and they brought them to the United States and they sent them to the American colleges and educated them in the American systems, uh, English language, democracy, uh, American sports. And then they sent them back to the Philippines where they became the next generation of leaders. What the result of that is that by courting just this one class, it was not a true democracy. It becomes what what is still, in effect, an oligarchy and a plutocracy in uh, the Philippines today. There are basically about 60 different families who all emanate from this period of you know over a century ago who still basically control uh, the Philippines today. They own, uh, you know, 
most of the businesses. They derive most of the income. And so you still got a lot of people living, living in poverty where a sm very small group of people run the country and get very rich doing so. I think definitely um, the the ability of, of Filipinos to adapt or adopt, reject, or, or, or take on wholesale uh, comes through with their interactions with the YMCA, right? Because the YMCA is trying to promote a particular religious type of practice through sport, but Filipinos seem to adapt to the sport, but completely reject most of the religious instruction that might come alongside it, right? Exactly, because the, uh, the the American bureaucracy and the American government at the time was was completely Protestant. Okay, you don't even have a uh, a non-Protestant run for a presidency until the 1920s. Uh, you know, a Catholic from New York, and he's thoroughly defeated. He has no no chance. Um, and so there's this very much this Protestant ideology. I mean, one of the things I thought was very ironic and almost comical was that they immediately sent all kinds of Protestant missionaries over there and they were going to convert the the, the, the Filipinos to, to Christianity. I mean, they had been a colony of the Spanish who were ardent Catholics for 300 years. They were Christians already, but their version of Christianity wasn't the proper version as the Protestants saw it. So they were going to try to convert them. That didn't work out very well. Um, they converted very few uh, actual Filipinos. But the YMCA, and most people today don't realize this, the YMCA today is, is kind of like any other health club. But at this time, the YMCA was a very strong proselytizing organization who sent missionaries all around the world using sport as a way to attract young men and then preach their Protestant values to them. And th this is what the YMCA tried to do there. And it was really kind of amazing how close the YMCA worked with U.S. government. In, in the United States, there's supposed to be a com complete separation between church and state. But in the Philippines, the YMCA was allowed to uh, write the manuals for the schools, be on the school board, uh, run the playgrounds and parks organizations to set up all kinds of things. Uh, they got the best land, which they got a lease of a thousand years uh, and to create their YMCA buildings. But where the YMCA fell short and what became very evident to the Filipinos, even though they preached all these things about fair play, and, and, and proper sport, they still practice segregation just like they did in the United States. And so they built separate YMCA buildings for Filipinos and for Chinese. They, could, they were allowed to play against the Americans in these games, but they weren't allowed to live with them in the dormitories. And, and the Filipinos saw this as an obvious uh, hypocrisy. You know, you're, 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 you're preaching all these American values about democracy and yet we're held in a subservient position and we can't even sit down and eat with you. In fact, the American uh, governor's general and other uh, administrators uh, very reluctantly even interacted with the Illustrado families. They, they, and, and, and this came about through sport because uh, what the Americans did, they copied what the British did in India. It was too hot in Manila for the Americans, just like it was too hot uh, for the British in India. And so they went up in the mountains and constructed a uh, summer capital in a place called Baguio, a resort town. And Cameron Forbes, who was the governor general at the time, a very wealthy guy, um, took his own money. He built a polo field and a golf course up there. But then in order to uh, keep these things going, they had to create real estate lots, which Worcester went up there ahead of time and, and 
bought up a lot of the lots, then he could sell them at a profit. He knew what was going on ahead of time. Uh, they had to sell them to wealthy Filipinos, right? So they they started to interact socially through sport. Uh, eventually, they would get invited to some dinners and dances and things like that. Uh, but that was kind of rare. So segregation was practiced throughout the society, uh, except in the brothels, okay? They had the biggest brothel in the world in the Philippines, which was even uh, attended by one of the governor generals and uh, one of the who became one of the Filipino presidents. So it was quite well known around the world. Uh, the Philippines becomes this exotic and erotic tourist vacation or you know place for American vacationers. Um, so as I said, the Filipinos uh, adopted but also adapted. Uh, many of the characteristics of American culture uh, to their own culture. And so, and you still see that today. So as I said, you can still see uh, the American economy at work. You can see American shop or American style shopping centers and things over there. Uh, but yet it's still not a true democracy. And, and that's very easy to see through the dictators. And they've got one again, uh, you know, who have come to power uh, in the Philippines. I'd I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about this kind of long history uh, of American sports influence in the Philippines. In particular, um, you know, so much of your book is about the popularity of of American baseball, and at the time, it seemed like baseball was king. And then all of a sudden, there's a bit of a shift in which Manila seems to urbanize, and a lot of the baseball fields, uh, the diamonds start to go away, and basketball becomes becomes king. And as I understand it from reading your book, basketball is is still uh, by far one of the most popular sports in the in the Philippines. So I'm wondering if you can talk more about what kind of long legacies US sports policies had in the Philippines and and what things didn't ever change. Like why couldn't they ever get rid of cockfighting? I don't cockfighting was was the sport of the the, uh, you know, the peasants. Okay, and it was how they made their extra money by betting on on the cockfights every week. And the Americans, because it was this Protestant mentality that gambling was wrong, they wanted to wipe out anything uh, with gambling, you know. But uh, they could not wipe this out. This was ingrained in the culture, and it was it was an economic factor uh, as well. There's a very famous um, article on cockfighting in by an anthropologist in. Uh, Indonesia. And, and this was a Muslim society. And, and part of the uh, Philippines was as well. Mindanao and uh, the Southern Islands were Muslim. And so, you know, they there was a caste system and things among Hindus. And the only way that they could gain any respect was if their rooster beat the chief's rooster. And then, you know, till the next time they have a fight for one week, they not only won all the bets and the money, but they've got some, what, you know, we now call social capital in the village, you know, because they were able to, you know, even though social, socially they're not equal to the chief, at least in this one instance, they are for, for a temporary period of time. But this is why they couldn't wipe out cockfighting, and it still goes on there today. But as you said, as Manila urbanizes, okay, fields are lost. Uh, when the American military pulls out, okay, baseball is, is no longer uh, the major sport. The Filipinos uh, take to basketball, and so basketball – becomes and still is the national sport over there. They're very interested in the American NBA uh, with social media. They're big fans. They, they, uh, there's some of the literature about the Philippines today and sports. Um, The few scholarly studies have been done. The latest one is, is about 
uh, basketball in the Philippines. But uh, so basketball uh, remains the major sport. Uh, baseball dies out, except baseball in certain pockets is still uh, very prominent. In the Visaya Islands, which is in the central Philippines, these are the areas, I think, that still send uh, Filipinos to the Little League World Series. Um, and, and, the, and for a number of years, they had won until there was a scandal where they could not produce um, – uh, this is maybe 15 years or so ago, they could not produce birth certificates to verify the ages of the kids. And so they thought the Filipinos were cheating with overage pitchers and things like that. Um, this has happened in another instance where, you know, now they're trying to promote baseball in Africa, which would be the next cheap labor market. Uh, but they've got a, a, you know, a major league baseball clinic in Ghana, I think it is, but the, the kids couldn't come because they couldn't produce birth certificates. And so, uh, but again, this is how the soft power works. The American economy and especially sports agents and sports um, um, owners are looking for cheap uh, labor force. You know, they can't get that anymore in most countries that have become part of the uh, global economy. But Africa is still an area where soccer players as well come cheap. And so this is the area where they're focusing on. And they're not the only country doing this. There's, you know, there are many others. I mean, a small oil country uh, or like Qatar has uh, what's called the Spire Academy, where they bring in mostly African kids uh, with world-class facilities, hoping they'll become citizens. And most of their under-20 soccer team is already uh, non-Qataris. And uh, if you paid much attention to the Olympics, uh, I think Bahrain was another one, United Arab Emirates, two other small uh, Arab countries uh, whose uh, track runners made it to the semifinals in some of the, uh, some of the events. So basically they're buying athletes from other countries because they're wealthy enough to do that. Well, I, I really encourage everyone, uh, if you're interested in the history of sport in the Philippines in particular, or just interested in, in a work on cultural hegemony and how certain technologies or tools um, can be shared between a more hegemonic power and a less hegemonic power. Um, then you pick up uh, Gerald Jem's book, Sport and the American Occupation in the Philippines, Balls, Bats, and Bayonets, out from Lexington in 2016. Uh, Jerry, can you tell me a little, we were talking about this before the interview started, but can you tell me a little bit about your next project? Yeah, I've actually got two projects going on. Um, right now, I'm, I've been working... Um, uh, for part of the past year, at least, for about a book on the role of sport in uh, promoting urban identities, and so I'm I'm really kind of using the organizational pattern of the Philippines book uh, in Chicago, looking at some of the similar factors like uh, what's the physical identity of the city, what's the uh, economic identity of the city, what's its racial identity, what's its uh, social class identity, what's its religious identity, what's its gender identity, and trying to see how sport weaves through all these things and eventually getting to the fans uh, and how these things coalesce into an identity for any particular uh, city and what that means economically. I mean, at least here in the U.S., if you don't have a major team in every uh, professional sports league, uh, you're not considered big time. And this is where, and this is, these are the ones that generate a lot of money. This is where the players want to play. These are the kinds of things that give you world-class status. So that's one of the uh, books that I'm working on now, and I'm uh, maybe a little bit more than halfway through with that. And then I gave a presentation on uh, sport and aging uh, up in Canada a couple months ago. And um, 
a publisher from another university press, uh, asked me to take that and turn that into a book. And I said, gee, I told him, I, you know, I've, I'm still working on this other one I need to get finished, and that's going to take me the rest of the year, uh, maybe longer. And for me to really research this whole area and put together a whole another book uh, would take a couple of years. I said, let me make a proposal, and I came back to him with a different idea. You know, I said, I have a lot of friends around the world, just came back from a conference in, in Germany, um, and solicited a number of people, and what I'm going to try to do is take a number of people that I know have aged successfully and from a number of, from a number of different, uh, different uh, cultural groups in different countries. So I got people from uh, Australia, from Egypt, from South Africa, from Scandinavian countries, European countries, Americans. Uh, and what I'm going to try to do is put this together in an anthology and then try to see if there are any common characteristics or common strategies that people have used um, and what role sport or at least physical activity might have played in that uh, to see if that could be helpful to, you know, a wider range of people around the world. So that's the other book I'm working on, but that one's still just in its, uh, well, it's not in the planning stages. I've already got, uh, um, one, uh, draft from one of the authors already and the others are working on it. So I anticipate that that will, um, uh, finish up next summer. Sounds like both of those books will have great audiences that, uh, especially the latter book will have a particular audience, but maybe. Yeah, that w- that was the feeling of the editor as well, that there aren't any books out like this. And so he'd like to be the first. So that was kind of the impetus for pushing me to, to get it done. Hey, and as populations age, uh, uh, that book gets more and more timely every day. I think we'd all like to stay active into our, into our older age. And how do you do that is uh, an interesting question. Yeah, well, uh, part of it is, you know, what uh, the French sociologist philosopher Pierre Bourdieu called habitus. A lot of it, it's, uh, and that's built in usually by the time you're eight years old, depending on the social class that you grew up in. So that's an interesting factor of analysis to look at. And that's the other thing I'm trying to do. I'm trying, uh, I grew up in a working class family and one of the people, my mother's 93 years old, I'm going to have her write a chapter. Uh, The whole outlook, uh, uh, depending on what class you grew up in is very different and how you see the world. And, And she's got a very interesting perspective on that i think <laughs> great thanks thanks so much jerry so You're welcome. Uh, if if you've been listening that's been um G- gerald gems or jerry gems professor and former chairperson of the department of kinesiology at north central college in naperville illinois and we were here talking today about his uh, excellent book sport in the american occupation of the philippines bats balls and bayonets Uh, I'm Keith Rathbone from Macquarie University. Thank you all very much for listening and have a great day.